ladies, gentlemen, and shapeless cosmic entities from a world without stars. Welcome to the Companion Briefing Podcast for August 11th. As usual, we're going to be discussing the week's biggest sci-fi news stories, including Doctor Who and The Suicide Squad, and dissecting the week's biggest sci-fi release, the first episode of Marvel's What If, streaming right hacking now on Disney+. And we're your hosts, I'm companion editor James Hoare, and this is our handsome producer and on-site cinephile, Tommy Terry Green. Hello, TTG. Hello, I can't believe we're talking about Doctor Who again. I should probably watch an episode one day. Well, we're talking about the Suicide Squad again, so we're just making the same episode over and over again. Being the spirit <laughs> of Marvel's What If, it's very much What If This Bish Did the Opening. Right, as always, we are kicking things off with the, the Week in Geek, the Nibs, that's news in brief for those of you who uh, didn't waste three years of your life studying journalism, only to be writing about trailers on the internet. Um, the Orville Season 3 is finally moving forward after a bit of a stop-start, stop-start production thanks to COVID. Uh, there is a teaser trailer for Stranger Things Season 4, the new footage creeps in at about 20 seconds, so I get that space bar bashing. And your eye, Tommy, I believe, has been caught by the Brian Bolland Judge Dredd Apex Edition in the um, things we're buying. Oof. 100%. I love a good British comic book, especially all the 2000 AD stuff, especially the Judge Dredd stuff. So it's, it's really, really cool. Uh, yeah. I would love to pick one up, but... Yeah, it's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the signed slipcase is 150 um, British pounds, but there is going to be a regular edition, which is a much more manageable, 65 pounds. I don't know what that is in, in US dollars. Um, 7,000 US dollars, let's say. Um, can we get production to check? 7,000 US dollars. Um, that will be up for pre-order in November, so maybe you can start leaving notes around for Christmas. But yeah, maybe I'll just get the Back to the Future socks instead. <laughs> but yeah, I absolutely love Brian Bolland. Um, so also famous for Batman the Killing Joke, obviously. But what I love about his Judge Dredd work is there was not actually that much of it in the grand scheme of Judge Dredd. He did, uh, I think, the classic Cursed Earth Saga, Apocalypse War, um, probably some others that I'm not thinking of. Um, but he's, despite that, he's very much, in my mind at least, the definitive Judge Dredd artist. When I think of an image of Judge Dredd, I think of Bolland's rippling muscles and scowl. It's all there. So that, yeah, that's a beauty. And it's nice to talk about 2000 AD on this podcast. I think that's 2000. The way you said that, I feel as though Brian Bolland has got rippling muscles. <laughs> you just think about this like giant ripped dude like over a yeah. front art desk. Oh, I, I mean that may, well be, that may well be true. Um, Brian Bolland is stacked. Brian, if you're listening, call me, bro, and we can exchange um, tips for for bulking up. We can be like the um, Dwayne Johnson and uh, Hugh Jackman of British comics. So, Brian, give us a bell. So that homoerotic aside to one side, I believe you've been getting your knickers in a twist about the, I think, somewhat glib readings of the Suicide Squad's financial success. 
or yeah, lack thereof. It's it's a really interesting one. It, it used to be going back a couple of years ago that um, the box office was very straightforward. You sort of have an idea of what a film's budget is. You kind of roughly double it for the marketing uh, budget associated. Sometimes it's a little over doubled, especially for cheaper films that are maybe getting a, an awards push or maybe that were picked up at a festival for quite cheap. So then they can spend a little bit more on marketing. If there's like a hidden gem there, I think of films like Clerks, stuff like that. Um, but these days it's not so straightforward and, and it's not just COVID. There's now all these day and date releases on streamers that we, we kind of talked about last week with uh, Black Widow and the whole Scarlett Johansson saga. So it's, it's really interesting to see the, the conversation around this. So the Suicide Squad opened last week with, um, well, rave reviews. Everyone seems to, well, the majority of people seem to really, really enjoy it. Um, but it only made 26.5 million US dollars domestically uh, in its opening weekend, which it was kind of pessimistically predicted to be 30 million, which would, would be low anyway. Yeah, I would um, for 30 million. <laughs> so the fact that it's underperformed still um, usually would be very disappointing, but there's a few things I'd like to kind of dive into around that. Um, well, firstly, it opened below Space Jam 2 and Jungle Cruise, um, but it is R-rated, which R-rated movies always perform a little bit worse, or typically perform a little bit worse, just because less people can see them, by sheer maths and age, age groups and stuff like that. Um, but obviously the game's kind of been changing lately with films like Deadpool and obviously the Joker made a billion dollars, which was R-rated. Um, Logan was very successful. So the, the, the narrative around R-rated films has been changing slightly. Um, but here's a couple of reasons you could say it might have contributed to achieving these lower numbers. Firstly, COVID. Obviously, we're still in the midst of a pandemic. Whilst theatres are open, um, people aren't going out in the same big groups that they used to be. Some cinemas are even limiting the amount of people that can go to each screen so they don't have the same capacity as they used to have. So the sheer number of people that can go in a weekend is lower than before. Um, and of course, people are just worried about it spreading. Um, so they're playing it safe. Uh, of course, there's the HBO Max day and date release, so people can literally just watch it from their home if they have HBO Max. Um, you've got kind of the Snyder Bro Ayakut kind of protest going around, people not wanting to see it because they want to restore the Snyderverse and get the Ayakut out there and, you know, all this quote-unquote activism that they've got going on. It's interesting i'm not going to touch too much on that no, no, um maybe what i i will say is if only that energy were invested in something constructive the world might oh, be a no. better place yeah absolutely um it's also the fact that it's kind of a confusing reboot slash sequel to an already disappointing film you know it's, it's not called suicide squad 2 it's called the suicide squad instead of just suicide squad but it's got some returning characters in it. It's come out five years later, which is quite a while for a, a kind of sequel anyway. Um, mm. It's a sequel to a Will Smith film without Will Smith in it, which is a recurring theme these days with like Men in Black International and 
Independence Day resurgence. Um, yeah, and you, it's interesting because something occurred to me just as we were setting up, and it it goes back a little bit to um, what I was saying was a pro about the Suicide Squad was that it wasn't just there to take you along the production line to some kind of orchestrated mega event. I was talking about sitting joylessly through three bad or three mediocre Marvel movies to to see the one that quote-unquote matters. And I think the problem now as well is we've now been socialised to only take seriously superhero films which matter. So Mm. I think that confusing sequel reboot issue is actually a major thing. It shouldn't be. We should just go and see good films rather than buying into... Like, we don't become investors in Disney by seeing all the Marvel movies. We don't get shares. Like, it doesn't work like that. We should be rewarding good films, not good branding. Um, yeah. But I suppose I can rage all I want, and uh, that's not really going to make any difference. No, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I, th- I think the final point I want to make, which... Um, just to add to why the these numbers are quite disappointing, is the fact that the budget is so big on this. It was $185 million, which uh, I believe from a quick bit of research, but please do correct me if I'm wrong, I believe is the biggest budget for an R-rated movie. I think um, I think Deadpool 2 was about $110 million. And I think the third Matrix movie, or maybe the second Matrix movie, um, or didn't they shoot them concurrently? I feel like the budgets there were around 150, something like that, and I think they were R-rated. So I think 185 is the highest. So that's before marketing costs are added to that. So you can expect at least another 100 million on top, at least, if not more. So, yeah, you can you can see why, you, why Warner Brothers might be disappointed with a $26.5 million opening. Mm. But... Um, the way I started this conversation was saying that the, the rules have changed a little bit and it's actually now not so clear-cut. And there's kind of this grey area now because um, of these streaming services. So it's hard to quantify success in the way that we used to because the numbers aren't as public for how many people watched it on HBO Max, how many new people subscribed, how many people didn't churn or, or leave the service. Um and how much is that worth to Warner Brothers? Because it seems to be that that's worth quite a lot to them because they're putting a lot of stock into it. So, so it's it's a it's a tough one. We we live in a new world and we've got to adjust to it. And by yeah. we, I mean box office nerds like me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the the box office nerds like you have had it all their own way for too long. We have to start appreciating that not every piece of relevant information is sitting on Google for you. Uh, we fundamentally fundamentally don't know what Warner Brothers' measure of success is for the Suicide Squad. We've got to assume that they have one because, like you say, that is an enormous amount of money to spend on an R-rated movie. Um, but I think the, the noise, the official line coming out of Warner Brothers is has been positive. Um, they seem really pleased with it. James Gunn seems really pleased with it. I know that's kind of like a studio's job. I mean, they could be talking about like North Korean kind of press officers talking about how James Gunn gave birth to the mountains and invented golf. But there's no kind of Scar Joe style blow up here. 
uh, Idris Elba's not suing anyone or anything like that. So, um, well, everyone's... I wonder then if in the budget there's more above the line costs that come out from that budget because they knew that there wouldn't be box office incentives in the same way. Maybe they've kind of preempted the situation that Scott Johansson's in. Um, because I think Warner Brothers push to HBO Max has been a lot more aggressive than Disney's to Disney Plus. It kind of seems like every now and then we'll, we'll get it, whereas Warner Brothers have been like, yeah, everything's going to be on there. So maybe they've a lot of that budget's just gone into, um, like I said, the above the line to sort of the writers, directors, cast to, yeah, compensate for the, the lack of box box office because they want the day and date and they don't want to have to compromise on that so it's fascinating it's definitely something to watch out for because i think at the beginning of the pandemic the perception was that hbo max was the the sort of the sick man of streaming really to to coin a bit of early 20th century history reference reference to ottoman turkey there the sick man of europe but um, <laughs> you see, you learn with this podcast. You learn it's not just us talking about films. We'll get some uh, pre-first world war geopolitics in there. But the perception was that HBO Max was the the poor relation. Is was it HBO Max that um, Christopher Nolan was talking about when he gave that quote about a year and a half ago about oh we woke up this morning to find that our films were were premiering on the world's worst streaming platform <laughs> something yeah. like that yeah he's talking about tenet yeah. yeah so now we're in a position where suddenly hbo max matters um so warner brothers it does look like they may have turned this to their advantage yeah i, I mean Hundreds of thousands of people tuned in to watch um, from like in the Heights on HBO Max, and I forget the number, but I believe a few million tuned in to watch something like uh, Mortal Kombat. So, and, and then obviously the uh, Snyder Cut was released exclusively there, or it might have had a theatre run. I'm not sure, but it's yeah, it's just, the, the value is growing for it for, for definite. I suppose if the Snyder Cut brought in all the the DC Ultras, then they had no reason to go to the cinema. Yeah, definitely. Which is sad because the cinema is great. Yeah, <laughs> Everyone yeah. should enjoy these films at the cinema. It's the best place yeah. to watch films. On the other hand, it meant I'd have to sit next to any of them. <laughs> <laughs> Swings and roundabouts. <laughs> uh, we're so... Really... <laughs> What's happening with Doctor Who this week? Why is it on? <laughs> Why are we talking about it again? <laughs> I mean, you, you, you can't even mask your disdain at this point. I, I see we're still talking about Doctor Who, are we, James? That's good. <laughs> How long is this going to go for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I to be honest, I thought we were going to have a week off from Doctor Who as well, but uh, J. Michael Straczynski popped on to, to Twitter to kind of, you know, tweet, sort of asking for a friend, does anyone know how I get put in charge of Doctor Who? Okay, thanks, bye. Um, and Straczynski has an incredible resume, whichever way you, you slice it up. He created Babylon 5 and its spin-off series Crusade, co-created Sense8 with Wachowskis. He's had legendary runs at Marvel and The Amazing Spider-Man and DC on Superman Earth 1. 
he had a story credit on the first Thor movie, which in my opinion is essentially a Viking reskin of the 1996 Doctor Who movie anyway. I think I might have alluded to this before, so I'm going to um, answer a question that you're refusing to ask, which is what exactly do you mean by that, James? And is this going to ruin my enjoyment of the uh, the first Thor movie? Almost certainly yes, because you'll be unable to, <laughs> to watch it without thinking that it's somehow connected to Doctor Who. But yeah, it's 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 all there on screen as far as I'm concerned. It's a despondent, immortal amnesiac from a far-off world is set up by his fabulously camp evil nemesis. He falls to earth, captures the heart of a local girl who doesn't believe in him at first, amuses us all with his lack of contemporary noose and his Royal Shakespeare Company speech patterns before defeating his aforementioned fabulously camp evil counterpart who has designs on usurping him and returns to his highfalutin alien god lifestyle up in space. That is a description of both 2011's Thor and 1996's Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, it certainly helps that uh, Asgard in the MCU looks identical to uh, Gallifrey in the current Doctor Who series. So anyway. what you're saying is, because I've seen 2011's Thor, I don't need to watch Doctor Who. I'm worried that might be what I've said. Well, I'll, I'll have to make a note of that and come back to it. Maybe this can be the uh, the Doctor Who content for, for next week, and we can have four weeks on the trot of me talking about Doctor Who. Imagine that. Imagine living in that world. Um, I'm, I'm pro Straczynski taking over. I think you know, we're coming up to 20 years since Doctor Who returned to BBC and no disrespect to Russell T Davies, Stephen Moffat, Chris Chibnall, there's definitely a case to be made for a vision that comes from outside of that particular 90s fandom family tree. Like the three are really closely linked. Chibnall previously was a producer on um, Torchwood for Russell T Davies. Obviously both Chibnall wrote episodes of Doctor Who for, for Moffat, Moffat wrote episodes of Doctor Who for Davies. It's all very kind of linear. And I, I think it, the ceiling becomes very, very low despite your, your best intentions. You, they're all looking for similar things in that show. And to put that into to perspective, like New Who and its spin-offs have been on telly for 16 years now. Now, the next-gen to Enterprise era of Star Trek, which was dominated by producer Rick Berman and the kind of the peers around him, lasted 18 years, and that definitely outstayed its welcome, was plunged into a medically-induced coma and had to be resurrected in the form of a reboot. And as a Doctor Who fan, I'd rather we didn't get to that point. Um, as a non-Doctor Who fan, you can't wait for it to get to that point. <laughs> it doesn't bother me either way. Yeah, this is very much a scenario where where everyone's happy. <sighs> it, it would be really interesting if someone can tweet their way to showrun Doctor Who. I think that would be a fascinating way to get the job. Oh, I mean, if if it were if it were that easy, they'd have made me showrunner when it first came back. I've been, I've been, I've been tweeting at BBC every year, <laughs> once a week, every year since two thousand and five. Nada, no, not even in a formal meeting. Disgusting. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people kick off by the idea of having an American running the show that is so idiosyncratically 
British, but you know, in my opinion, some of the best Doctor Who work of recent seasons has come due to the input of director Rachel Talalay, who's done a ton of um, TV shows like The Flash, Legends of Tomorrow. She directed uh, Tank Girl and uh, oh. Freddy's Dead Final Nightmare. So she's a very American voice, and she's just brought so much kind of. Um, don't know what I want to say there. Authenticity to to the screen, but on the subject of Americans tackling British icons, finally we have Captain Britain, the animated series, in the form of the first episode of Marvel's What If on Disney Plus. That's What If dot 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 Captain Carter was the first Avenger, question mark. Um, the existence of Marvel's What If has obviously made Click Click Boom redundant. <laughs> it's very much the, the Click Click Boom series. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, bravo on that segue, first and foremost. That was, that was excellent. Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? I was thinking when I was talking about um, the idea, the way we've been conditioned to, to only watch superior things that we believe quote-unquote important would have been a good segue into this because this only exists because Marvel have laid the groundwork for there being a multiverse which is a really, really weird way to behave because they're effectively saying, I mean obviously Marvel and DC have been producing animated series for yonks and DC have the uh, tend to have the, the plaudits for having produced the better animated adaptations but those animated adaptations don't quote unquote matter because they're not part of the the shared canon with the, the movies. And so Marvel have contrived a way in which they can do cartoons that quote unquote matter um, by creating a narrative in which they both do and don't matter. It's really, really weird that you have to do this in order to get people to watch something on the telly box. But here we are. Um, it's a really interesting point. Huh? And I'm, I'm really interested to see if it does have any implications. If, as we start to go into these sort of live action multiverses, if we see anything there that we've seen in the What If series, uh, I, I think that's really exciting and intriguing. The TVA going to show up at some point? Who knows? Yeah, that would be good. Um, I'm definitely wondering if the Captain Carter thing especially is a bit of a soft launch or a soft relaunch of the Agent Carter show because the, the talent that were involved in the the episode um, were all kind of part of the cast. And also, it's quite interesting that they didn't go for a likeness for uh, Hugo Weaving, the, the Johann Smith of... What if is clearly not even remotely based on Hugo Weaving? Yeah, Maybe that I, isn't I'm sure they probably would have needed his approval for that. And he just, I guess, has no interest in stepping back because it was Ross Markand in uh, Infinity War that played Red Skull, wasn't it? Was it Endgame? Yeah. Was it Infinity War? I can't remember which one it is. I think it was Infinity War, wasn't it? Was it in both, so I think you've, you've dodged oh, there that. Um, and also Hugo Weaving can be a bit temperamental after the fact remember that when he kind of started trying to spark out Transformers 
Oh, turned yeah. out, turned out, Hugo Weaving voicing Optimus Prime wasn't one of the highlights of his career. Who'd have seen that? <laughs> but I would definitely watch a Captain Carter TV series, a live action one. I thought it was just so much fun. It was so silly. In in a way, I thought it was better than Captain America: The First Avenger. Not just because it was thirty three minutes. <laughs> I would agree, and actually, one of the, my biggest problems with this episode was when it started following the rails of the of the movie, and they just like they did the train thing, and it was just like, oh, okay, this is just just doing the movie. Then went off the rails again with a giant squid monster. I was very very happy. Um, I think we just need more giant squid monsters in um, our lives. Yeah, you are definitely. I mean, second episode that's that's been a, a theme. So, yeah, and I thought that was quite interesting because traditionally in the What If comic, the What If comic's always fantastically downbeat. Like, I don't think there's ever been a positive outcome in a What If comic. It's always like, oh, what if Pete, Peter Parker had, like, cancer or something? It's like, oh, my God, are we doing this? Like, for 34 pages. <laughs> Why is this happening? And it will inevitably be terrible. Like, there's no positive outcome. But what if Captain Carter was the first Avenger did have a positive outcome? And it, I suppose it goes back to that idea of consequence because you get that final scene, spoiler alert, unless if you miss that bit of preamble we had there about how there's going to be spoilers. Samuel L. Jackson pops up to to talk to her at the end. So we're already creating a universe in which Captain Carter is a significant character and has a future, which is contrary to you know the, the tropes of Marvel's What If comics. Um, I don't know if that's just because the narrative needs something more upbeat, because I don't think people are going to tune in for, for what if Peter Parker had cancer, um, or if it's because they're leaving that, that option open. So, yeah, I think it's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, the yeah, stuff I, about... I wasn't... Sorry, you go. Um, I, I wasn't a big fan of the art style when it first kicked off, the kind of cel-shaded like animated probably in 3D, but made to look 2D. It, it, it didn't really work for me at the start, but I really quickly adjusted and ended up just loving it by the end of the show. And uh, yeah, I, I think the action like set pieces were really engaging and interesting and dynamic. Uh, so I, w- I was actually really happy with the, the kind of the direction that the show took towards the end. Yeah, definitely. And I, I get your point with the, the animation style. It kind of felt almost rotoscoped. It reminded me yeah. of... The Scanner Darkly. Yes, exactly. I was struggling to remember what the name of it was. But yeah, it did have that kind of... Which is mental. St- that film is mental. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't but yeah, it feel exactly like that. And I mean, the lighting effects in that episode were gorgeous. Um, but it did take me a while to kind of bed into it. Um, <coughs> excuse me. They take me. They very clearly lent into the uh, advantages that you have with animation, such as like the transitions that you can do, like the the tesseract to the ice cube and the in the whiskey and you know stuff like that. Like it's just or the car perfectly landing in the middle. Like there's the, those perfections that you can get in animation that are really difficult in live action. They they really took advantage of that. Yeah, I I mean I'd love to see her get her entire. Um, animated series. I don't think it needs to be live action. I, I just loved it. I thought the 
I liked the reference to where eagles dare. I thought the ending felt very Hellboy, actually, with the um, chthonic squid monster emerging from the the portal. Um, there was the, the the bit where she was riding around on the back of the mark the mark naught point one Iron Man. Actually, made me think of DC's um, Stars and Stripes, where the uh, Star Spangled Kid, Courtney Whitmore. Rides around on the back of her stepfather, Pat Dugan, who is a robot. Lord. Yeah, there's no coming back from that, is there? The the stuff that I had a problem with is, to be honest, insignificant, but I need to get it off my chest. The bit where they're talking about the Red Skull being in Norway and the bloke in the office, I think it's the colonel, goes, Nazis were in Norway? Like Norway was invaded by the Third Reich in the Second World War. So unless there is some sort of... There is a larger story here about how the Nazis didn't invade Norway in Marvel's The Second World War, which feels like a, a sub... Was that a subplot that got cut? Was it like 50 minutes? And they're like, oh, we're going to have to take, take this bit out. Also, the scene where she pops up in Berlin for that first major fight scene. It's like, oh, they've taken something from Norway. And then she's just jumping off the Brandenburg Gate. Is it really that easy to get into the heart of the Third Reich and then just get out again for the sake of an action scene? Apparently, uh, that one decision that she made to stay in the room changed a lot. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. The entire course of the war. And I know that's it's just trivial stuff and it ultimately doesn't matter, but it ruins the, the immersion for me and at least seven other people on the planet. So uh, you know, we're gonna be we're gonna start a letter writing campaign. Also, I wanna give a shout out to what be, might be the worst line in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which was uh, a rejoinder to Bucky of or maybe you're afraid of trains. <laughs> that that pe- Peggy love, that's not a thing. <laughs> that's not a line. That's not happening. It's um, to me like a little certain somebody's afraid of trains. <laughs> I, I, I really enjoyed it. I can't wait for the next episode. I think, actually, I don't remember which is the next episode. I don't know. I just know kind of a handful of like premise uh, premises that we've got coming, so I don't know which one's next. I'm hoping it's the Black Panther is Star Lord one. That's the one I think I'm most looking forward to. I think the uh, Marvel Zombies one is obviously going to be the one that everyone still claps the loudest to. Um, I, yeah. I suspect the one most likely to generate its own product or branding inferno. Because the the comics are so beloved, um, beloved by people who probably don't read comics, in my opinion. But yeah, people love zombies. <laughs> people do love zombies. They like it in Captain America's a zombie. They like it in Spider Man's a zombie. It's all they're all zombies. Good one. A man wrote that, <laughs> and it almost <laughs> certainly was a man. But I I like the that she had a sword as well at the end. That's when it really felt like Hellboy to me a little bit of captain britain as well because he he's been known to use a sword on occasion and i think that's where i liked where it began to step away from 
the established Captain America template into something that you could see being conceivably Captain Carter's own world. One of yeah. maybe a little bit more occult and a bit of kind of Lovecraftian horror, one with swords and, you know, whatever else. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, agreed. Oh, another terrible line was, at the rate it's growing, it could devour Europe. Like, how do you know what rate it's growing? Like, how do you know? Is that a fact? Like, who's doing the calculations? I know you're just saying things, Peggy, to move the plot along. You've got 33 minutes to fill in quite a lot of content. But honestly, I want to see the workings. Yeah, what line's got cut so that one could get in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, maybe you're afraid of trains. How do we get them to get on the get on the train for that climatic action scene? We need to really move things along. Or she could suggest that Bucky's frightened of trains. <laughs> that is exactly a normal piece of character motivation. <laughs> I enjoyed uh, Toby Jones being back just to do his his silly comedy hello hello German accent. Yeah. And Stanley Tucci. Yeah, brilliant. So, this concludes the first episode of What If the Companion Briefing was hosted by an idiot? I've been James Hoare. That was Tommy Terry Green. If you have any insights, opinions, recommendations, it sends the email to the inbox or else it gets the hose again. Where do they send their emails, Tommy? To tommy at the companion.app. That's right, they do. Thank you for listening. <laughs>